Welcome to the Missoula Real Estate Meetup Podcast. The goal of the meetup is to learn more about the Missoula market, make authentic connections, and share strategies and information. As always, there will be no selling of any products or services, and it's always free to attend. We meet the third Tuesday of every month at the Highlander at 6 p.m. We usually have 30 to 40 attendees, and all are welcome. This podcast is where we share the audio from each of our in-person meetups. The audio quality isn't perfect, so apologies in advance. I've also summarized the details of this talk in bullet points. It is posted at MissoulaRealEstateMeetup.com. Without further ado, here's the talk. All right, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm going to do a quick introduction for everybody uh, and then hand it over to Keith. Uh, but my name is Brady. I work with Title Services. Uh, we like to help support events like this. Uh, quick story about what Title is. We help to make sure uh, that the properties you're buying are what they expect to be done. Everybody likes to hear horror stories and actually have one for this week. Um, and this is specific to uh, everybody that does wholesaling uh, or tries to double close properties. Uh, so we had a, a person who put a property under contract and then was immediately double closing to somebody else. Uh, the person on the other end wanted a private farm uh, ranch to kind of build a house and retire on. Uh, the seller in between, we put, the, we put together the title commitment from seller to wholesaler and wholesaler, the final buyer, sent everything out. Seller got the title commitment, said, is this everything that's gonna be on the policy? Yes, sold hunting rights to the property to somebody else, recorded it a week later, and the only reason we caught it is because I did my job and double-checked it and dated it down before we closed and signed paperwork. Otherwise, the person on the other end would have bought the property subject to somebody else being able to hunt on it for 10 years. And so that's why you need to have title companies that are willing to check on that stuff, double check and recheck, and the way, and the county will record anything. And so as long as you have two parties agreeing to something, they will record it. And this wasn't indexed to the proper legal description. I caught it because it was indexed to the person's name that was the original seller. But if somebody had only checked the back end of the transaction, they would have missed it. Um, so when you're working with a title company, always make sure on the day of closing that you ask if they dated down the file and checked between when you got your title work and when you're closing because things do change. So again, I'm Brady with Title Services. Hope you guys enjoy your presentation from Matt and I'll hand it over to Keith. Thank you. You know. Okay. Sarah, will you make sure this is on me? I don't know. Okay. Hi, my name is Keith. Uh, I'm a full-time real estate investor here in Missoula. Um, so the Missoula real estate has three main goals. Um, learn more about the Missoula market, especially right now. I mean, it seems like especially important. Our median price in Missoula County has now dropped 11% since June 1st. And so I think that's relevant information for all of us here. Um, our second goal is to share strategies and information. And our third goal is to make authentic connections. So um, I wanna say a quick piece about like this community, because I think real estate by its very nature is a fairly lonely job. Like you're not gonna go out and like naturally start talking to other real estate investors unless you're making the time to do it. Um, most of the time you're analyzing a property by itself, trying to figure out if it pencils or not, trying to figure out what the numbers are and doing a lot of that by yourself. And I think that's a very limiting way to do things. I owe a lot of my success to the ability to build relationships and be able to bounce ideas off of other people. And that's why I think communities like this are so important. Um, Plus, this business is a lot more fun when you're doing it with people you enjoy hanging out with. And so like, 
there's also that aspect of it is that the science on happiness is actually really clear. It's the relationships in your life, the friends and family that drive a lot of your happiness. And so why not combine those two things and do the business that you're doing with the people you enjoy being around? So that's, that's all I'll say there. I think it's, it's funny because like we're recording this for the first time so that people who aren't here can, can uh, listen at home. But I also think that like the most valuable part of this group is the relationship, the people that you're sitting next to, the people across the table from you. And so I think it's worth spending the time to come and you're wise for coming. So I'll leave it there. Uh, our speaker today is Matt Gare right here. Uh, he's an experienced loan officer with Man Mortgage. He's in the, been, been in the banking industry for over 10 years and been a loan officer for the last seven. He's especially skilled at working with, <coughs> sorry, working with like complex income structures, like for example, real estate investors that, for example, you know, have, have different things going on with properties and income and other things like that. So uh, he'll give us insight into the current market, especially things that just happened today and are happening tomorrow, like the Fed making its decision on the, their, their rate rise. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand it over to Matt. Uh, thanks so much for coming, Matt. All right. uh, thanks, Keith. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Gare. Some of you I know, some of you I don't. If you in the back cannot hear me, just do like one of these or something and I'll bump my volume up for you, okay? I'll do my best to make sure to speak slowly so that all of you can hear what I have to say. If you have questions, pop your hand up. Okay, so as Keith said, my name's Matt Gare. I'm a mortgage lender. I work for Man Mortgage here in town. I've been in the banking industry for about 10 years. I've been in mortgage for about seven. Um, yeah, so I've been doing this for a little while and I'm here today to share some tips, some strategies, some things that you can do to help, uh, just to get started as a real estate investor. This is geared a little bit more towards introductory investors. If you're in it, if you've got 20, 30, 40 properties, what I have here today probably isn't new to you. You're probably going to know some of this, but still, if you have questions, or if you'd like to dive in deeper, let me know. I will also hang out afterwards if you have questions. So the big thing I wanted to start with, it's the question that I get the most, or it's the biggest hurdle that I see people running into when they're looking to become real estate investors, and that's upfront capital, down payment, or cash on hand. So, you know, we can all work on the income side, we can all work on the credit side, but when you walk into a bank and you say to someone, I want a mortgage, I'm going to buy an investment property. They are going to ask you about your down payment and the response that you will probably get is that you need 20 to 25% down. And if we're talking about a $500,000 house, you are now needing to walk in with $100,000 plus closing costs on an individual property. So how do we mitigate that? How do we get you in the door without you needing to bring that large amount of capital up front. So, there's a couple of ways that we can tackle that. My personal favorite, one that I'm sure several of you in this room have exercised, is to purchase a property as a primary residence. You buy the house for yourself. If you are purchasing as a primary residence, you need to live in that house for 12 months, one year. After that, you can do whatever you want with the house without needing to refinance your loan. You can use that initial mortgage and now rent it out. That's gonna do two things for you. One, it's gonna reduce that down payment. On a conventional loan, 
as a first time home buyer, you can come in with 3% down, 3%, not 25. As a repeat buyer, 5% down. You're cutting your upfront capital by a factor of 80% by buying as a primary residence. Not only that, you are going to get a better interest rate when you purchase a property as a primary residence. That means that your property is gonna cash flow better when it converts to a rental. You get in, you buy it, you live in it for a year. You can do your renovations during that period if you need. And then at that point, you can move out, move a renter in, and you've obtained a rental property with as little as 3% down. Now, if you are looking to get better cash flows, say for example, from a multi-family property, your duplex, triplex, or fourplex, you still have to walk in with the larger down payment. On a conventional loan, even as a primary residence, that fourplex, you have got to have 25% down. No questions asked, okay? So, FHA, that's your solution. If you buy the property using an FHA loan, which is a government-backed loan, you're coming in with 3.5% down. Again, that's a way for you to acquire a multi-family property with a lower down payment. The trade-off, you can only have one FHA loan at a time. So you can't use an FHA loan and then jump every year and just continue to buy multi-family properties. You are going to need to refinance that first FHA loan into a conventional mortgage before you can get another FHA loan. Does that make sense? I'm throwing out mortgage acronyms here, so if I start using three-letter words, just say, hey, like, slow down. So, buying as a primary residence is the number one thing that you can do to get in with less cash out of pocket. And you can turn over and you can do that every year, every 12 months, 18 months. You buy a house, live in it, move. Buy a house, live in it, and move. And by doing that, you can accumulate a starting portfolio of investment properties. And given time, when you've got enough doors, you have enough properties, now you have cash flow to support building the money that you need to put more down. Yeah. Yeah. Owner-occupied, yes. If you want 3.5% down, it's got to be owner-occupied up front. Yeah. Same thing though, 12 months. You can move out and you can leave it in an FHA loan. So after 12 months, I can go buy another house. Oh yeah. Um, so his question was, does the fourplex on an FHA loan need to be owner occupied? And the answer is yes. You do still need to live in that house for a year with the FHA loan. But you can keep the FHA loan and move out. You do not have to refinance. So the question here was, can you get an FHA loan on a, on a house in a town where you already own a primary residence or another conventional loan? Sort of, kind of. There is no fixed rule to that. The language is gray. If there's a question mark about that, your, your lender needs to put that in front of an underwriter before you go under contract. Sometimes that can be a hang up, sometimes it is not. There's no 35 miles and you're good or 50 miles and you're good. It's not that simple. You just have to make a good compelling case and an argument. 
So there are ways to get around it. It can be tricky. Yeah. Sixty days. How soon do you have to move in after closing? Sixty days. You need to occupy the property within sixty days of closing. Now that being said, if you are doing renovations and you aren't personally moving in until seventy-five days, no one's going to come knocking on the door for that. What they don't want is the original owner still living in the property after 60 days and renting back from you. So 60 days, you buy a property, you need to move in within 60 days. Okay. Okay, so the question here was how often are they checking on that 60 day move in and how often are they checking on that one year before you move out and rent it? The question there, yeah. Is someone gonna drive by your house and go look at it? No, probably not. If you are listing a property online as a rental and you're 10 months in, there is a very, very real possibility that they will see that online listing and that they will contact you about that. Whoever holds the note. So whoever you're making your mortgage payment to, if you say, I'm living in this house and you put it online as a rental, there's a very good chance they are going to catch that. And there's a very good chance you're gonna get a phone call that's gonna say one of two things. A, your interest rate just went way up. Or B, you have 30 days to pay off your loan. Good luck. So don't call it a primary residence and list it online as a rental. They do check on that. Other ways that they might notice that. If all of your mail is being delivered to a different address. If you say, ah, this is my primary residence, but please send the mortgage statement to this other house. That's gonna trigger an audit perhaps. So. They will look into that at times. However, it's pretty unlikely that someone shows up and knocks on your door. It's it's happened. But yeah, Jesse. As a primary residence, no rental. Zero rental. Uh, you cannot rent a primary. So the question there was, how many days do you need to occupy a primary residence? And the short answer is, if you are telling a lender it is your primary residence, don't rent it in the first year. It doesn't matter if it's a 15-day rental. It doesn't matter if it's a 30-day or a 60-day rental. If you're renting it, it is, at that point, not your primary residence. A second home is different. You can purchase a property as a second home and rent it for a portion of the year. Theoretically, you could rent a second home for 360 days of the year and use it for yourself for one week. That's still a second home. So the, yeah, that's fine. So the second part of that question was, can you rent out individual rooms within a house that you also occupy? Yes. That is okay. You can rent rooms in a house that you occupy as your primary residence. You cannot rent the entire house. If it's a duplex, you can rent one unit and live in the other, but you need to be living in it. If it has a mother-in-law suite or an ADU, you can rent the ADU or the mother-in-law suite. That's okay. And then a question here. So it's a year from when you move in or from the closing date for how long you have to occupy? One year is from the note date. The date of closing, funding, and recording, not 12 payments. It is one year from closing. 
Questions? Okay, cool. Yeah, so it, it's a really common strategy. Buy a house, live in it for a while, move on to the next. Favorable interest rates, less cash down. That is the number one strategy that I can recommend if you are looking to start and you don't have a large sum of money sitting in a bank account waiting to be spent. Um, some folks are going to look to make that more of a two and a two and a half year thing because if you have been in a property for two years, it gives you the opportunity to remove mortgage insurance without refinancing the loan. You can use improvements to the property or market appreciation to remove mortgage insurance on a home where you put less than 20% down. That again will help your property cash flow more favorably as a rental. So if you wait more than two years, maybe you get rid of that PMI as well. Okay, so that's one way to, to, to really reduce your down payment. You can look at categorizing a, home, a property as a second home rather than an investment property. A second home can be used as a VRBO. So if you are purchasing an investment property with the intent to use it as a VRBO or a short-term rental rather than a long-term rental, you can claim a second home as the occupancy status. That will allow you to put 10% down on a single family residence. It is not going to help you with the threeplex, the fourplex, or the duplex. So. But what if I have money to put down but no job to qualify? Exactly. Well, that's a different set of problems. That's gonna be on the income side. So at that point, you can look at alternative methods of financing. Um, one strategy there would be what's called a DSCR loan. It's a debt service. Uh, it's essentially, you look at the, um, the cash flow of the property and does that cover the mortgage payment? So that's one strategy for someone who maybe is self-employed and writing off all of their income. You know, you're minimizing your tax liability, but now on paper, you show no income. I see this with contractors who have large sums of money. You just look at, does the property cash flow? And if your rents cover the mortgage payment, I'm not even gonna look at your income. I'm not gonna look at your tax returns, I won't ask. That is an alternative lending product. That's a little bit of a different world. It's very difficult to make that cash flow with current interest rates because that product's gonna come with an interest rate that's already higher than the 7% or 6% that you're getting. So when you're getting a property and borrowing $400,000 at a nine or a 10% interest rate, it's really hard to get rents to cover that mortgage payment. So that's a product that exists but it is difficult to leverage or to utilize right now. Um, you know, I could say cosigner if you've got one, that's great. Other than that, if you don't have the income on paper, that is a problem that is now case by case. You need to talk to your lender. I don't have a one size fits all solution for I show no income on paper. I'm gonna start asking you questions about, okay, what do you have and what solution can we create there? However, the rental income that you may generate from a property that can be counted as income. I am buying a house, I intend to rent it out. The appraiser will tell me as the lender, here's what we think that house can reasonably be rented for. And that can be counted as income to help you qualify for the loan. It depends on the lending product. In a conventional mortgage, we will use 75%. But on a DSCR loan, that's that cash flow. They're going to look at 100% of rents. 
No, they do not. Now, if you are converting, so the question here was, does a lease agreement need to be in place prior to closing to count rents? The answer is, on a house that you are buying, no. However, if you are converting your primary residence into a rental, I need a lease agreement for that. So let's say I own a house, I am moving out into a new house. The house that I currently own will become a rental. For that rent to be counted, that you would need a lease agreement for, but not on the house you are buying. That starts within 60 days. Uh, sort of, yeah. Yes, I can argue it if it's within 60 days. That falls under a guideline that's called future income. You can actually get away with 90. I suggest having your lease agreement start prior to closing if you can, or within 30 days. Uh, well, 90 days is permissible on a conversion lease. I guarantee you some lenders are going to say that's not the case because they simply do not know or their underwriter does not know. If you are going to a more conservative lender, they're just going to say, nope, that's too weird. We won't touch it. That's where you want a lender that A, knows their guidelines and B, has underwriters who know their guidelines. Like, holy smokes, this is what's gonna separate a local lender with a local underwriter from a local lender with an underwriter in Denver. It is not the same thing. When my underwriter doesn't understand something, I can walk into their office. I can pick up the phone and say, hey, I know it's weird, but here's how it works. And they go, oh, cool, I didn't know that, great. That's not gonna happen at Wells Fargo. Sorry. Sorry to Wells Fargo, I'm sure you guys did great. Uh, so, uh, so how do we come up with money other than reducing the down payment? What are other ways that people are coming up with money outside of the good old fashioned, I saved it. Uh, it's easy for me to tell you, yeah, just go save $100,000. Harder for you to then do that. Gift funds. Ask about gift funds from family. I can't tell you how many times I have people come to me that say, I can't do it, a gift is not available, it's not there. Talk to your family about this. There are oftentimes substantial incentives to a parent to transfer some of their wealth to their child or to a family member before they are deceased. Their financial advisor may in fact say, yes, give your kid the $100,000 now do not wait until you die. It is better from a tax perspective in some cases. Just have the conversation. I strongly encourage that. But I understand that not all of us can go to our parents and ask for money. I would just say that, bring it up. People might be more open to it than you would think. When you say it's better Potentially both. I'm not a CPA and I'm not a financial advisor. So while I'm on record, I would decline to answer that question in detail. That being said, there, there can be ways to leverage tax advantages with gift money. Um, I can speak to personal experience. When we bought our first house, we got a small gift from family. I got, I got $15,000 from my mom because she was able to gift me that money without paying any taxes on it. It was tax free. If she gave that money to me in a different scenario, one or both of us would have then ended up paying taxes on it. So it was an incentive for her to give me that little bit of money. And that helped get us over the hump on our first house. It was that little bit extra that we needed. So um, leveraging equity. Okay, you've bought that first house. You're, you've got your foot in the door, but you used up all of your cash to get there. 
you've owned it for two years. Tap into your equity on your house or other assets that you own. It's gonna be a cash out refinance or it's gonna be a HELOC. And that's a little bit uglier right now with higher rates, but it allows you to convert the value of your property into cash that can then be used to acquire another asset. So that's where you're looking at borrowing against your existing, existing property. That house that you bought, it became more valuable. My net worth has gone up by $200,000 because my house is worth $200,000 more. But I want to do something with that value. I want my money to earn me money. So if I can though take out a HELOC at a 5% interest rate, use that to acquire a property that's gonna make me more money than the expense on that 5%, I have now come out ahead. I am beating the cost with my returns. So you have to look at what am I paying to access that equity and what am I getting out of it? And is that a positive cash flow? Some people are gonna go into cap rates, things like that. That's something that you should understand and look at. Learn about cap rates if you don't know what it is. It's a very helpful way to analyze how far is my money going as a real estate investment versus alternative investments. Um, other borrowed funds. You can borrow money for a down payment. It just has to be secured by an asset. It doesn't matter what that asset is. It doesn't have to be a house. Your credit card or your personal loan cannot be used for a down payment on a house. You can't do it, not with a mortgage. However, if you own a truck, free and clear, a jet ski, a rifle, I don't care what it is. If you get a loan that has a piece of physical collateral, that money is now eligible. So maybe you owe $2,000 on your truck and we need an extra $10,000 to make this transaction happen. Go get a loan on the truck. That's a source of funds. But again, you now need to consider what am I paying to access that money? And what am I getting from the money once I use it? And you're gonna analyze those two things and compare them to see if taking money out on the truck makes sense to then turn around and put it back into a house. But that's another way to get into money. Those are the strategies I've got for you. I know it's not a magic solution, it's not a magic bullet, but getting the cash can be one of the most challenging aspects. So you wanna reduce the amount of cash that you are spending and you wanna tap into sources of equity as much as possible. That's a way to get your foot in the door. So, questions there? Brady. Are there any restrictions uh, for borrowers to get in FHA? <laughs> like what? Uh, income restrictions or location restrictions? Gotcha. Yeah, so FHA does not have income restrictions. It does have restrictions on loan amount that scale based on the number of units in a property. So an FHA loan, you can only borrow a certain amount of money, which on a single family residence right now is about $500,000, at least in Missoula County. But on a duplex, a triplex, or a fourplex, the amount that you can borrow with an FHA loan increases to the point where on a fourplex, oh gosh, I wanna say it's about $850,000 that you can borrow on an FHA loan. So that 3.5% down to get into a fourplex you can actually get enough loan to afford the fourplex, which in Missoula, you're not gonna find a fourplex for $300,000. It's not a thing. Yeah, FHA interest rates are pretty comparable to conventional loans. The question was, does an FHA loan and a conventional loan is the interest rate about the same? 
The short answer is yes. Now, if you have damaged credit or limited credit, if your credit score is lower, an FHA loan may provide a more favorable interest rate. Those interest rates don't, they don't increase as rapidly with lower credit scores. So if for some reason your credit score isn't as high, an FHA loan can be a, an appealing option. One major, major downside to an FHA loan that gets ignored so often, they charge an upfront funding fee. You don't pay that funding fee out of pocket. It gets attached to the loan. So some people ignore it and don't notice it. But it is almost 2% of the balance of your loan. You are right up front paying 2% of your loan amount as a fee and you are never getting that back. And not only that, you're then gonna pay interest on it. So an FHA loan comes at a cost. So you have to understand your opportunity cost. And a good lender is gonna say, hey, look at this wonderful 3.5% down you're getting, but you understand that this is the fee that you are paying to access that money with a low amount down. Is that the purchase price or the mortgage? Mortgage, loan amount. It is based on the loan amount, not the purchase price. It's part of the payoff, yeah. Yep. Um, real quickly before I forget this, one way to reduce that fee, a greenhouse, a certified energy efficient home. No one knows about this. It's a pain in the butt to prove it, but if you have an Energy Star certified home, they will reduce that fee from 1.75% down to just 0.25%. That is a huge savings. Like go buy some nice appliances and make sure you have good windows. You just paid for itself. Like those appliances are free now. Yeah. Because a conventional loan will not allow you to do 3% down on a multi-unit property. The conventional loan is going to require 25% down, no questions asked on a multifamily. There is no, hey, let's do this and get it down. Conventional multifamily, 25%, full stop. Is there any uh, borrower qualifications that need to happen before you can use rental income to qualify on a purchase? The short answer to that question is, okay, so the question was, are, are there any qualifications that the buyer or borrower needs to go through in order to count rental income from the house they are buying? No, however, if you do not have documented experience of having been a landlord or a rent, like renting out properties, they limit the amount of the rental income that you can use. The rental income, if you have no history as a landlord, can offset the mortgage payment and it stops there. It cannot count as positive income. It can be a wash, but it cannot be a positive income. Now, if you have history as a landlord, we'll, we'll count it as a plus. Yeah, question. The easiest way to do it, and the first stop for most lenders is tax returns. You would report rental income on Schedule E of your tax return or through a business entity. You provide those taxes, it shows that you've been a landlord, great. If you do not have those tax returns, you can provide lease agreements, and they're probably also going to ask for bank statements to prove that you have actually been receiving the payments shown on the lease. Yeah. There, there's a couple alternatives, but those are your big ones. Yeah.
One year is fine. It doesn't even need to be a full year. If you've got a Schedule E that says you've been a landlord, you've been a landlord. Uh, there are, with some government lending programs, some exceptions, but for the most part, that's going to be the case. You start getting into down payment assistance, affordable lending products, you're, you're in a whole new world, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I know exactly what you mean. So the question was, when we are looking at Schedule E, that's that's on your tax returns. That's where you show your rental income. When we're looking at that rental income, we're also seeing all of your expenses. And the question was, depreciation or some of those other expenses, what are we doing with that? So what we're going to do is we're going to take the bottom line. How much money are you making on that rental after expense? That's your income. But we are then going to add several of the expenses back in. And depreciation is one of those. So let's say you rent for $10,000 total, but you're reporting $3,000 in income. Well, that $2,000 of depreciation, I'm going to add that back into your, into your income because depreciation is a non-cash expense. Depreciation, or the decreasing condition of your property, reduces your tax liability. But that money, you still have it in your hand. You can still use that to make a payment to me as a mortgage lender. So that does get added back in. And that will apply to any non-cash expense. Depreciation, amortization, casualty loss. These are all things that we add back in. So some of those expenses, they reduce the amount you pay in taxes, but they don't reduce your income on paper from the perspective of a lender. So, okay. Any other questions? It depends on the type of loan you're trying to get, but between six and 10 at any given time. When you hit 10, you're done getting res. How many loans can you have at a time? It's between six and 10. It's circumstantial. When you hit 10 residential mortgages, you are done getting residential mortgages. Congratulations, you own enough property. You've graduated. You're getting commercial loans now. You're, you're at the next level. When you're getting in, so the question here was, when you are getting an FHA loan, can that appear less competitive as you are making an offer on a house? And if so, how do we mitigate that? The short answer is that yes, sometimes an FHA loan is considered to be less competitive. I don't think that should be the case. This, I think, is a result of lenders who are not good at their job, not understanding what properties do and do not qualify for FHA. A good lender should be able to look at a listing or go to a house and say, yeah, this house will go FHA just fine. Or, hey, this will go, but like, I need GFCI outlets near the water sources in the kitchen and that peeling paint on the window still needs to get addressed. A good lender can pick up the phone, call a listing agent and have a conversation and get your FHA loan in a competitive place. But yes, because of misconceptions around FHA loans, they can at face value sometimes be less competitive. That's where as a lender, that, that, that's where my job kicks in. If you're an FHA loan client, 
I'm probably gonna proactively call the listing agent. I'm gonna say, hey, look, you're getting a pre-approval letter from me. My client has written you an offer. I know it's an FHA loan. Look, I've looked at the listing. It looks good to me. They are well qualified. They are appropriately vetted. We're not gonna have hangups on the loan. I'm not gonna blow this up a week from closing. And that phone call oftentimes can offset some of the misconceptions around FHA. So the, the question here is current conventional loan, what are the interest rates um, with the understanding that they fluctuate? I'll give the big disclaimer. It is so different. It, it depends on the person. It depends on occupancy. For a primary residence with good credit, right now, six and a quarter, maybe 6.375. That's down from seven and a half. So yeah, mid mid sixes, low sixes on a primary investment property. I locked a, a single family investment property a week ago at seven and an eighth, 7.125 on an investment property. But we specifically did that at that rate to mitigate fees. The, the client didn't want to pay three points. So we kept their fees low with the idea that they're likely going to refinance. Okay. So uh, just with the time constraints, the next thing I really wanted to talk about tonight were just sort of general trends in the mortgage industry and with interest rates. I feel like that's kind of a hot topic and something people might be interested in. Before I dive into the interest rate and mortgage industry trends, do we have any other questions on that down payment front? Cool, okay. So, you guys are all here at a group to talk about real estate investment. I'm sure that you're all to some degree familiar with what has gone on with interest rates in the last 12 to 18 months. And the short version is, last year they were a lot better than they are now. You know, going into the end of 2022, you know, I would have said three and a half percent maybe on a primary residence. Right now I'm sitting here saying low sixes. We hit seven and a half percent at one point. They doubled versus last year. Interest rates increased massively. However, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Today was actually a very big day on that front. So. The, uh, the federal government released core inflation data today. And good news, inflation is down for the second consecutive month. That was good for mortgage rates, but what it says is that we have probably hit the top. I do not expect mortgage rates to continue to increase, and if, they are, if there are increases, I imagine they will be relatively small. We've probably seen the peak, and from here, I expect us to level off relatively, and what we will get in the immediate future, what I'm comfortable predicting at this point is compared to the last 12 months, stability. You're not gonna call me and get a quote and then call me three weeks later and it's a whole percent higher in three weeks. Like, ugh, I don't expect that to continue. I expect relative stability and then a gradual decrease over time. How much it will decrease and when is really hard to forecast at this point, but going into the new year, in the ballpark of 6% is where we appear to be. I don't expect major changes on that immediately, but going into quarter two, quarter three of next year, we might start to see some meaningful declines in rates. So probably at the top, probably have stability. Over time, we will see declining rates. I cannot tell you how much or when. So that's what we've seen on the interest rate front. 
The other changes that we're seeing in the industry really are, are they're somewhat unfortunate for this group in the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, what are called the GSEs, government sponsored entities. They drive mortgage guidelines. These two companies, they write mortgage guidelines. And even if you are doing mortgages with other companies or as a lender, if I am selling loans to other companies, these are still the baseline rules that almost every mortgage lender is going to follow. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have said, we want less investment property loans, we want less second homes, and we want less cash out refis. These are the three things that the people in this room are looking to leverage. So what you can expect on investment properties are higher fees, what you can expect on second homes are interest rates comparable to investment properties, and what you can expect on cash out refinances are higher interest rates. So they are trying to say, we want people to buy primary residences, and we're gonna try and make the terms on those loans better. And to do that, we're gonna charge more on all of the other loans. That is what they're, that, that, that's the messaging that you're going to see. I'm not sold that that's